When I was seventh grade, I had a vice principal named uh, Mr. Jordan. Mr. Jordan was the, uh, the discipline principal at my school, and uh, he had some unique ways of, of solving problems among us. When some of us boys would get in a conflict, we'd get in a fight, we'd be disruptive, we'd be sent to Mr. Jordan's office, and in the corner of his office, there was a coat rack, and on the coat rack, he had uh, two pair of boxing gloves. And so he would say, boys, grab the gloves, go outside and solve it. No kidding. And so he would send us outside behind the school and, and we would fight until, you know, one person just finally gave in, gave up. Then we'd straggle back into Mr. Jordan's office, hand him the gloves, sweaty faces, bruised, sometimes black eyes, frequently bloody nose. Usually someone had busted lips because half of seventh graders have braces. I mean, we're a mess. This is Mr. Jordan's solution. Now, you know, not surprisingly, he caused more problems than he solved. And apparently, after my eighth grade year, the uh, boxing gloves disappeared. Never saw them anymore. What did we really need from Mr. Jordan? Now, when we were, we were having a, a problem that we couldn't solve, what did we need? Well, we needed somebody in authority in our lives with some power over us who actually had a little bit of wisdom and cared for us and wanted to enter into our world and help us solve it in a constructive way. That's what we needed, and that was not Mr. Jordan. You and I frequently face problems and issues in our lives that we just cannot solve. Freshman this week, you're going to step into your first class. That prof is going to hand you a syllabus. It's not going to be like anything you ever saw in high school. You're going to look at that piece of paper or 10 pieces of paper and you're going to think, oh my gosh, there's no way that I can finish all of this in one semester. But then you're going to go to the next class. And you're going to get exactly the same thing. You're going to go to four or five professors, maybe six or seven. You might sign up for a lab. You only get two hours of credit or one hour credit, but it's twice as much work. And you're going to say, this just cannot be done. It's absolutely and utterly overwhelming. You're going to hit a point of the semester. You say, I I, I quit. I got to quit. Mom, dad, can I come home? I mean, it's just, it's rough. Or maybe you went potluck. And it just... It's stinking. It's terrible. It's not, it's not good. You've got conflict with that roommate. Or maybe you sign up to room with your best friend. It's worse than potluck, right? I mean, it's just... <laughs> Relationships breaking down. For some of us, a job will be frustrating this year. Or marriage may be difficult. Parenting may be hard. For some of us, our health may deteriorate. You may experience loneliness. Or there may be temptation that is just overpowering. What do we need? We need someone with power to step into our lives who cares about us, who has wisdom, who enters into our world with the strength to solve these issues. The book of Genesis introduces us to just such a God. He's transcendent. He is great beyond anything that we could imagine. And yet he is a God who draws near, who enters into our experience, who does not abandon us, but saves us. This year, for fall and spring semester, we're going to be studying the book of Genesis. An entire year. You say to yourself, gosh, a whole year, a whole year on just one book? Well, as we start, I want to give you three good reasons for studying Genesis for an entire year. First, Genesis provides answers. Genesis provides answers to 
life's most difficult questions. Questions that many of us are asking, questions that our friends and family are asking. Why does the universe exist? Why why is there something rather than nothing? Why do I exist? Why am I here? Can I find or how can I find purpose, meaning, peace? Why are relationships so hard? Why does it seem like there's always some level of conflict and struggle? Is there a God? If so, can I know him? Does God love me? Does God like me? Is there a God? Can I know him? If he is knowable, do I even want to know him? Does he want to know me? Charles Schultz, who's the inventor of peanuts, wrote this before he died. He said, I don't know the meaning of life. I don't know why we are here. I think life is full of anxieties and fears and tears. It has a lot of grief in it, and it can be very grim. And I do not want to be the one who tries to tell somebody else what life is all about. To me, it's a complete mystery. These are the questions that people are are asking, or, or maybe they're working really hard to avoid them because when they get to the end of their own answers, they realize they've answered absolutely nothing and they don't know where to go. Genesis answers the hardest questions of life. Second, Genesis provides a worldview to understand the most complex issues that face our society today. What is marriage? How should we define marriage, or does it really even matter how we define it? Is abortion a problem or not? Should I care about the environment? Is it my responsibility? Why is there so much pain, suffering, violence, and war? In particular, why is the Middle East always in the news? Why can't the Jews and Arabs just draw some boundaries and get along? Just draw the boundaries and step back. Will there ever be peace and justice? And who's to blame for all these problems? Is it me? Is it someone else? Is it God? Is he responsible for all of this chaos in the world? Third reason we should study Genesis is Genesis provides a foundation for understanding the entire Bible. Have you ever walked up on a, an ongoing conversation among your friends? And you've walked into the middle of this thing. It's been going on for a while. And you just stand there for a while trying to figure out what exactly is being talked about, right? You're, you're, you're searching for verbal clues to try and get a gist of the conversation so you can enter in. Everybody else is entering in intelligently, but, but you're on the outside. You don't really understand what's going on. Well, sometimes that's what we experience when we take our Bibles, we flip open to the middle, and we start to read. Because we don't understand the beginning of the story. Beginning of the story happens in Genesis. The Bible is story. The Bible is a story. It's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if we don't understand the beginning, it's going to be really difficult to understand the middle and the end. And every story has a plot. The Bible has a plot. Typical plot line runs something like this. There's an introduction to the story, and usually uh, things are pretty good. They're in reasonable shape at the beginning of the story. But then a crisis occurs, and things plunge down, and the characters enter into a struggle, and they've got to figure out how to bring resolution to the story. End of the story, the problem's resolved, life is moving on well. At least this is how, this is how American stories work, right? Because <laughs> we like our stories to all end happily ever after. Interestingly, European stories often don't end this way, right? At the end of the European story, everybody's sick or dying or dead, 
close the book and you're done, right? That's why as Americans, we avoid the Russians. It's like, no way, man, it's, it's like this long and everybody's dead at the end. No, give me a hero. Give me some resolution. Happily ever after, that's what we like. Well, fortunately, the Bible has a happily ever after. It's got a hero who steps in and changes everything and the story ends well. The Bible begins by setting the stage. The world is created and it is good. There's a problem. The world is corrupted. Sin enters into the world in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2, it's all good. Genesis chapter 3, it's all turning bad. Chapter 3 through chapter 11, human history just goes downhill and downhill and downhill. It gets worse and worse and worse. The world is plunged into conflict, but we see God beginning to intervene. But he's not fixing everything. It seems sometimes like he's just kind of setting the stage for resolution and we we get a glimpse of hope. A hero steps onto the stage, but then that hero fails. He's inadequate. It's incomplete. And history's moving along and we're hoping and we're dreaming and we're praying for resolution. We know, living after the cross, that Jesus Christ came and he accomplished the redemption, not only of humanity and God's program, but as we're told in Romans 8, even all of the created order, even the earth, will be redeemed. But he doesn't claim his full victory. He won't establish everything as right until he returns. And all of the world is recreated. And paradise is lost in chapter 3, and paradise is restored and regained at the end of the story. And we rejoice. That's the storyline of the Bible. What's interesting is fully a third of the basic plot is laid out for us in the book of Genesis. If we didn't have the book of Genesis, the rest of the Bible really wouldn't make much sense. If we just had Genesis and not the rest of the Bible, it would be very depressing. It'd read a lot more like a Russian novel than what we want to read. But when we take it together, Genesis lays the foundation and the rest of the Bible shows us how it all comes back together. Now, to put it differently, Genesis is a story. In particular, it's a story about a relationship between the one true God who is transcendent, he is near, and he is gracious. In the beginning, God creates. Before the beginning, there is nothing. There is only God. Only God is eternal. And then he speaks, and through just the power of his word, Creation comes into existence. Out of nothing, God makes and he creates design and beauty and complexity and order. God is great. He is transcendent. He is above his creation. He rules over all. But God is also near. He draws into the experience of his creation. He moves into it. He reveals himself to Adam and to Eve and to Noah and to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. God presents himself and draws these men and women into relationship with himself. God is gracious. He makes promises throughout scripture and throughout the book of Genesis. Promises that he always keeps because he is a giving God. He is a gracious God. So Genesis is a story about the one true God who's transcendent, near, and gracious, and his people who are exalted, broken, and yet loved. You know, the longest section of the creation narrative is about us. There are a few verses that are devoted to sun, moon, and stars and the creatures on earth and in the sea, but 
there are many verses that are devoted to us. And then chapter two expands upon the creation of men and women. The only creature made in the very image of God, the only creature with the capacity to have a personal relationship with the one true God, to bear his image, to represent him upon earth. As it says in Psalm chapter eight, God, what is man that you even think about him? He's, he's dust from the ground and he will return to dust. And yet you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have exalted him to a position that is just a little lower than the angels. And you've caused him to rule over all of your creation. Oh God, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth that you would exalt us like that. And yet we are deeply, deeply flawed. Because of the choice of Adam and Eve, sin entered into our lives, into human history, And we have become corrupted. We have become affected. We're not as bad as we possibly could be, but every aspect of our personalities is affected. Our our, our mind, our thinking, our reasoning, our emotions, how we feel, our choices that we make, even our bodies have been affected by sin. We are broken, deeply broken, but still loved. Genesis 1 through 2, we see man exalted. Genesis 3 through 11, man broken and failing and getting worse. Genesis 12 through 50, man is loved. God pursues. God makes promises, covenants, through which he will bring his nearness to all of the earth. God doesn't quit. God does not give up on us. Never. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. In other words, what we most need, God is. God is great. He is powerful and he enters into our brokenness and draws near. James MacDonald wrote, God is massive, infinite, ineffable glory who dwells in unapproachable light and I am happily the opposite. A real encounter with the living God changes everything. First, it magnifies the Lord and then it puts me and my ego and my sin and my burdens all in their rightful place and they are overshadowed by the wonderful and beautiful greatness of God. And then you see this theme running throughout all of the Bible that God is transcendent, he is wholly other, and yet God is moving near. First description of of an interaction between what it was like for God and Adam and Eve is the garden. It says God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day and God is looking for Adam and Eve because he wants to be with them. He wants to be near them because that is life for them. And even after they sinned, the great cry of the human heart, maybe because of sin, the great longing and cry of the human heart is to be near to God. David's most famous psalm goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. With God as my shepherd, I don't want for anything. I don't need anything because I've got God. He is my guide. He is my guardian. He is my provider. He makes me lie down in green pastures and I am safe. I can sleep because God does not sleep. All that I need is provided for by this great and transcendent God who has entered into my life. Jesus would tell his disciples that he himself would be departing shortly and they were grieved. He said, don't grieve because you know how much I love you. And the reason that I'm leaving is to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you and show you how much I love you, of course I will come back and bring you so that you can always be with me. And yes, I'm departing. But I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Now go and make disciples of all nations, but remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. And that's how we see the story of the Bible, in fact, concluding in the book of Revelation. John wrote, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away and they never will return. And there won't even be a need for sun or moon or stars because God himself will be light in our presence and we will live with him forever and ever and ever. The God who dwells in unapproachable light will draw us near into his presence. What we most need, God is. What we most need, God is. So the book of Genesis begins in the garden but it ends in the grave. Genesis begins in the garden, but the book of Revelation, we're restored to the garden. We're restored to the presence of God. But we really can't understand how we get there or why we need to get there unless we understand the book of Genesis. Genesis is foundational. So I want to lay a little background for you, beginning with the author. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Well, if you went to Sunday school, you should know this answer. It's not Jesus, right? Uh, it's Moses. Moses wrote Genesis probably between the years 1446 and 1406 BC. 1446 marks the date of the Exodus. 1406 is a, the approximate date when Moses passed away. And so he was writing for 40 years. He didn't write just Genesis. He wrote the entire Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. Old Testament confirms this, New Testament confirms this, Jewish scholarship confirms this, church history confirms this. Moses wrote these first five books. Now, of course, there are a few sections he didn't write. He didn't write the story of his own death. Somebody else had to fill that in. And you do see some place names that are updated. Later scribes came in and updated that so that people could understand the places and the people that Moses is talking about. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And we say to ourselves, wow, how is that possible that a man living 3,500 years ago could write such an amazing piece of literature. Well, Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, gives us a little insight. It says, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. Moses had the best education available in his day. Now, I realize it wasn't Texas A&M, right? But... But it was like the Texas A&M of the ancient world, right? To, to be studying in Egypt. It was an amazing education. The Egyptians were brilliant people. And so he studied their language and their literature. He probably read and wrote in multiple languages. He studied science. He studied philosophy. He studied astronomy. He studied all disciplines. M- Moses was highly educated and he was a brilliant man. But Moses was not alone. We know that God was writing with him. Book of Genesis, all the Pentateuch, is scripture. It's the word of God. Peter describes the process through which we get scripture like this. He says, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That is, the Holy Spirit moved on their hearts and their minds. God spoke to them and through them. And he used 
their mind and their language and their vocabulary and their culture and their setting to communicate to us the word of God. As it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed. That is, God breathed it out and he breathed it through human authors and they wrote. And so what we have in the book of Genesis is true, it's accurate, it's reliable, it's the word of God. Oh, what exactly did he write? And when we open up the book of Genesis, what kind of literature do we have in our hands? In order to understand it properly, we've got to have a sense of, of, of what we're looking at. Now, I, I must confess that um, my worst grade ever in school, my entire career, kindergarten through it, my postgraduate education, everything, all, my worst grade was actually in English. It was an English grammar test and in seventh grade, and I, I made a 28 Okay, it was, it was horrible. I, mean, it was, I was frustrated, I was embarrassed, I was really angry. Uh, my comfort was that all my buddies made like 23s, 24s, 30s. I mean, everybody just got blasted by this test, except for the fact that there was one girl, right? One, one girl who totally aced the test, and so there was no curve. On it. You know, I'm still, I, I still, I remember her face, I remember her name. I'm, I'm still getting over it, but I'm, I'm, I digress. Here's the point. We're not talking about forgiveness this morning. We're talking about Genesis. And here's the point. The point is this, right? I now am really fascinated by language and how language works. And what really got me into it was wanting to understand the word of God better. So I got into studying grammar and syntax and morphology and genre and all these things because I want to know what God's word says. So when we open the book of Genesis, what are we looking at? Well, it's not myth. It's not myth. If you sign up for a religion class at Texas A&M, this is what you may hear, but it's not, it's not myth. It's not an ancient made-up story, nor is it merely history. And it's not a science textbook either. It's none of those things. It has been said, Moses wasn't speaking to a convention of agnostic scientists nor to a group of academic historians, but to an ancient Near Eastern people on a journey of faith. So what is it we have in our hands? Well, in simplest terms, Genesis is historical narrative written with a theological purpose. Let me add a few ideas in there. Genesis is historical narrative, but it includes sections of poetry, some some long sections of, of poetry, Hebrew poetry. Embedded within the historical narrative, there are also figures of speech. God breathes into Adam, but does God have a mouth? No, God is spirit, right? You see anthropomorphisms and other figures of speech, but it's still clearly historical narrative. It's, it's a true story. We also see idioms or Hebrew slang that are really difficult sometimes to understand because it's ancient. Phenomenological language, that is, language in which the writer writes from his perspective about the events that he sees. And we also see law. The law of Moses is written in a form that ancient Near Eastern people understood. It was written in the form of a Hittite sovereign vassal treaty. So we see different forms within a basic historical narrative with a theological purpose. And so what that means for us is that it's true because it's history. It also means it's selective because the author had a purpose. He didn't record everything that could be recorded over this vast period of time. He was very selective. And we learn a lot, not just from what's included, but from what is excluded. 
it's also artful. In a couple of weeks when we talk about the literary structure of Genesis chapter 1, I promise you, you're going to see things in the text that you never realized were there. It is a beautiful piece of literature. Bruce Walkie once wrote about it like this. He said, Genesis is ideological art. And that's a beautiful statement. Genesis is ideological art. So, why did he write? And why did God direct him to sit down and write? In order to understand this, we have to kind of retrace the history. Let's, let's get the setting for the writing of the book of Genesis. Remember, we have Adam and Eve created the fall. Humanity descends. Things get worse and worse, and so God intervenes. He sends a flood. He wipes out humanity. Starts over with Noah and his sons, but <laughs> Noah and his sons, they're, they're, not, they're not jewels. I mean, they're okay, but gosh, I mean, they fail immediately as well, at least one of his sons in particular. And he begins to develop a, 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 an anti-God line that is resisting the rule of God. And these people gather together and they say, you know, let's not submit to God. We don't want to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You know, what we want to do is come together and make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower for ourselves. We're going to reach into the heavens and we will be like God. God says, you know, this just is not good for them. Let, let me mix things up. So he comes down, he creates language, he scatters them, he confuses them. They begin to go out and fill the earth, and God intervenes in a particular way. He chooses one man and one family, Abraham. He says, through Abraham, I'm going to bring my great name near to people. All the families of the earth will be blessed through him. I'm not going to just bless him for his sake, but so that he can be a blessing to all people. And he begins his redemption program through Abraham's line. Abraham has a son of promise. His name is Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. He actually has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is chosen. He's the younger. He is also not a great character. Jacob has 12 sons, and his family is an utter and absolute mess. We're going to talk about the dysfunction of Jacob's family. You think your family's messed up. Man, this family of Jacob, they're a disaster. Kind of the crowning illustration of this is the sons are out in the field and they see the youngest son, the favorite son, Joseph, coming to them and they're jealous of him. So as he's coming up, they say, you know what, let's just get rid of the guy. Get rid of him. So they take him and they just throw him in a pit. They sit down and they have lunch. He's crying out, you know, get me out of here. I'm, you know, I'm tired. I'm cold. I'm scared. Get me out. They just ignore him. They just eat callous. Then opportunity arises. Some Amalekite traders are coming by and they say, hey, this is better than killing him. Let's sell him. Might as well make a little profit off him. So they sell him. They take his coat that his father had given him, shred it, cover it with blood. They go back to their dad and they say, dad, sorry, Joe's dead. And Jacob mourns for year after year after year and they never tell the truth. They live with that lie. A famine hits their land, and they're hungry, they're starving. Jacob says, go down, as we hear there's food in Egypt. And when they go down, they discover that their brother Joseph is alive. In fact, God has graciously saved their family. He saved the entire nation of Egypt through the wisdom of Joseph. And so Joseph brings the entire family down to him, including his father. Seventy people, seventy people, not a big family. And they live in Egypt for 430 years. And that's where Genesis ends and Exodus picks up. For 430 years, the family is growing. And they grow from 70 
to two million. It's a big family now. And they don't know God. They have forgotten who God is. Told in the book of Joshua, he instructs the people, he says, put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. Serve him alone. Okay, the gods which your fathers served beyond the river, that's Abraham. Abraham was beyond the river, that is the river Euphrates. Abraham came from an idolatrous family. He was rescued and introduced to the one true God. But when the people went down to Egypt, there were many gods, and they lost sight of the one true God, and they began to worship the gods of Egypt, and so they had to be reintroduced to God. Remember, when God comes to Moses in the wilderness in the burning bush and says, go redeem my people, Moses says, well, who should I say sent me? I need to tell them who you are and your name because they don't know you. God says, well, reintroduce me like this. I am. Reintroduce me according to my covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. I am. Tell them who I am. So Moses goes back and he reintroduces the people to God. He confronts Pharaoh and in signs and wonders, you know, God rescues Israel, brings them out of Egypt. And they come from the land of Goshen and they enter into the wilderness. But once they get into the wilderness, they realize all they have is a promise. God said, I'm not just going to rescue you, but I'm going to bring you to the promised land. And they're in the wilderness and they're wondering to themselves, can, can we really trust this? What's his name again? Oh, Yahweh. Can we trust him? Because remember, Back in Egypt, there was, there was water, and there was food, and there, there, are a lot, there are a lot of gods back there, and we've just got one. Sh- should we go back? Oh, oh we were slaves. We, we know we were slaves, but when this is all you've got, and you're wandering around, you wonder, can I trust his promises? And so they grumble, and they complain, and they whine, even though God provides for them water and quail food, sustenance, protection. Their shoes don't even wear out. God leads them actually to the edge of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They send spies in and the spies come back and say, yeah, it's it's an amazing place, but we can't go in. Why? Because the people are stronger than us and their gods are stronger than our God. They don't trust God. And so he turns them around and he sends them back into the wilderness. For 40 years, they wander around till that generation dies off. And a new generation is brought to the edge of the promised land, but, but they're shepherds. Maybe they know a little bit about farming, but now they've got to be soldiers and they've got to go in and enter into this promised land where there are strong people there are even giants in the land and they have their gods and we just have one god and they need to be reminded who god is and so moses writes to the exodus generation who are tempted to go back and to the conquest generation who are afraid to go in and he says you need to remember who god is in particular three things they needed to remember first god is transcendent god is great and only god is great The Egyptians had a whole pantheon of gods. They had hundreds of gods. And Moses says to God's people, no, God is one. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God and you shall worship and serve him only. Only love God. Let your heart be one for that one true God. He's not part of a pantheon. He's not part of of creation. The Egyptian gods were in the Nile. They were in the river. They were in the ocean. They were in the great sea, the Mediterranean. They were in the stars and the moon and the sun. They were in beetles and plants and other bugs. God says, no, I'm I'm not part of creation. I am over creation. I'm not part of a pantheon. I am not part of creation. I'm not even part of time. I am. I am. I was. I am. I will be. I am transcendent. And they needed to get a sense in the midst of their fear and their trials and their challenges that they faced that God was great beyond anything that they had ever imagined. Unlike any of the gods of Egypt, unlike any of the gods of the Canaanites. Umberto Casuto is one of the greatest commentators on the book of Genesis. He made this statement. The purpose of Genesis is to teach us that the whole world and all that it contains were created by the word of the one God, according to his will, which operates without restraint, without constraint. God did not create because he was lonely. God didn't get tired at the end of his creation. He did not grow weary. He is utterly and completely different from any God, and he's different from us. God is transcendent. Second, they needed to be reminded that God is near. When they were in Egypt, they had heard promises, but they felt abandoned. They were separated from the land. They were separated from the promises. They were separated from their God. They needed to be reminded that God is near. God cares. God has not forgotten. That was the message that Moses brought to the people. He said, remember, your God has not forgotten you, but he is sending a deliverer to you. Third, they needed to be reminded that God is gracious. The Egyptian gods didn't care about people. And creation was formed in the context of, according to some myths, violence and warfare or sexual immorality brought about creation. And then as an afterthought, the gods thought, you know, we need someone to work for us. That's mankind. And so the gods did not care at all about men and women. But our God does. He's a God who enters into our existence. He's a God who gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. He gave abundant provision to Adam and Eve in the garden. After they'd sinned, he gave them skins to cover over their sin and their nakedness. In the wilderness, God gave to his people food and bread and water. God gives. In fact, what we see in our Savior Jesus Christ is that the eternal creator of the universe actually serves us. Is that stunning to you? God serves us. Imagine the creator washing feet. That's grace. Undeserved, unmerited blessing and favor from God. I want you to think for a moment about the world that we live in and its concept of God. 
We, we happen to live in a, a subculture that is more conservative than many other places. But this is not the kingdom, right? This is not the kingdom. Predominant worldview that we live in is that God does not exist. If he does exist, he can't be known. Or if he can be known, he's not worth knowing. Because he's really more like this vindictive judge who hovers over creation and when he chooses to intervene, it's to inflict hardship and punishment. You don't want to know him if he can be known, if he even exists. That's the predominant worldview. That's why Genesis is so critical for us to study because we open up its pages and what do we see? We see complete truth. And we see an accurate portrayal of God revealing himself as the one true God, great, awesome, powerful, transcendent, high above the heavens, separate from his creation, yet one who enters into our earthly existence. That is who God is. And our world needs to hear accurately who is God. And they need to understand who are we and why are we so broken? And why can we just not get along? Why can we not fix our own problems? The world needs to know that message. The world needs to know it. So I have a few points for you specifically how should we respond? First, draw near to God. You're going to see as we move through the book of Genesis, God revealing himself over and over and over again. And each time he calls those to whom he has revealed himself just to draw near, to believe, trust him. Believe in him as he says he is. Not as you imagine he might be, but as he says he is, draw near. And it may be for some of you, you need to draw near to God for the first time. You, you may have walked in here not believing that God exists at all, or maybe not believing that God is able to be known or worth knowing. Maybe for the first time this morning, you need to say, God, I believe that you have revealed yourself. Specifically, I believe you've revealed yourself when your son took on human flesh and died for me. I believe. Maybe you need to draw near for that first time and simply believe that Jesus died for you. When you do, God removes that debt of your sin. You enter into the life of God and you have the promise that you will live forever in the presence of God. Maybe today is that day for you. Or maybe you have already believed, but you are wrestling, you are struggling, you are resisting God as he has revealed himself and his will. And you need to drop that barrier and draw near. Maybe as we close this morning, you need to spend a few moments just consecrating your life again and giving it to God, saying, God, you you are creator of the universe. You know best. Please enter powerfully into my life. Draw near. Second, I'd encourage you to draw near to God's people. We were not designed. We are are not um, powerful enough to walk closely with God and and be transformed by him on our own. That's not God's design. God designed us to be in community with believers. Uh, Matt reminded you this morning in announcements, we handed out that Get Connected card. There are people with stickers, Get Connected. Please get connected. Don't don't wait and say, okay, once the semester gets rolling, I get everything settled, then I'll get connected. No, Put, put the big rocks in the stream first, and one of those is connecting to other believers. It may be here at Grace, if you're a student, there are, there are Bible studies through Grace. There are excellent Bible studies through parachurch organizations. There's 
uh, FCA and InterVarsity, Campus Crusade, Navigators. There are all kinds of opportunities for you to get connected. Get connected. Students, I cannot emphasize to you more strongly that Satan will come after you this semester and he will try to crush your faith. And one of the great guardians that you have against that is friends with whom you can study and pray and hold one another accountable. Okay, so get connected, do it quickly. And then third, dig deep into Genesis with me. Right? I, I invite you to dig deep with me. Don't just come on Sunday and re-engage once a week. Uh, this semester, I'm going to be sending out, um, Blake and I will print, uh, put out Bible study questions. Not a lot, just a few to kind of keep your thinking going. We'll put it on our website. I'll put it on my Facebook page. We'll send it out on our Twitter accounts so you can study and think. Maybe that's what you want to do with your small group. Okay, a little preview, this is where we're going. Okay, six sections that we're going to, to use. In the, the very end one, we're going to talk about Jesus, who is the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham. But this is the process. We'll be going through this all fall, all spring. Let me encourage you, dig deep. This week, got a real simple assignment for you. I want you to just do uh, one thing. I want you to read Genesis 1 through 2 and think a little bit, meditate a little bit on two questions. What do you learn about God, his nature, his attributes, his character from Genesis 1 and 2, and what do you learn about yourself? Okay, Genesis 1 and 2, what do you learn about God, and what do you learn about yourself? Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are not like us. Thank you that you do not grow tired or fatigued, that you do not become fearful or anxious We thank you that you are not overwhelmed by any issue or any problem, but you are great. You're powerful. You're awesome. You are eternal. You are the one. You are the only true God. We thank you, Father. You are not like us, but we thank you, Father, that you have entered into our experience and you do not abandon us, but you enter in and you give and you give and you give. Father, make us people who trust you so that we can receive. It's in Jesus Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Students, have a great week. First week of class. We'll see you next Sunday.